Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in and know that you are welcome, as always. You have wended your way through the District of Wonders, through days gloaming and December gloom, and have rung the nook. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and this is our weekly gathering, Tales to Terrify. I am not inclined to make celebratory fussings over birthdays, anniversaries, and such, so let us say tonight's gather is four evenings shy of our second anniversary, and that will be that. On the other hand, this is the Christmas season. I love Christmas. Reconcile that with what I said of anniversaries, birthdays, and such. Christmas is a very sensual holiday, with smells and tastes and sounds, snowy chills, winter dark, presents, desperate love. I was wholly inclined toward liking Christmas when I was a tot, Our tree was always very real and always floor-to-ceiling, the erection and decoration of which invariably inspired some lovely rages and called forth some darkly colored words for my usually very calm father. The tree was difficult to put up and required specially cut wooden braces, hand-chiseled slate slabs, large nails, buckets of coal, gallons of water, all assembled in a bucket decorated with broken crockery and shards of glass. Don't ask. And once up, the thing was very difficult to decorate, because finally it arose from the middle of an electric train layout that in memory, seemed to circumnavigate the whole of our living room, skirting easy chair mountains and coffee table plateaus. But, but once done, the Christmas room was a wonder of light and color, and filled with the smell of pine needles, mixing with the scent of ozone as real metal tinsel crackled sparks from the Lionel train set's third rail. The assemblage of tree and train and village was a large undertaking, 
executed mostly as a solo effort by my father, who was aided only by running reviews from mother, the critiques of my grandmother, and a grandfather who mostly sat and read the paper, glancing up occasionally to cluck his tongue. The urgings of my father's only child probably weren't much help either. But once done, the season stretched into deep, deep December for a a five-year-old. That's forever. A month of light and scent and cookies and anticipation, which all came crashing on the rocks of Christmas morning, and the drab anticipation of that yearly finale of joy, New Year's Day, when the whole of life drained out of me with a sour watching of the Mummers Parade in Philly. If you're unfamiliar with the Mummers, it is Philadelphia's major claim to folkloric tradition that puts thousands of pre- and post-drunken men wearing literally unbearable costumes, that is to say, costumes that cannot simply be worn but must be rolled about, trundled around on wheels and other mechanical contrivances, all of whom strut down Broad Street, plinking away on massed choirs of banjos to bring O-dem oh, golden slippers echoing through the TV and into my now-dead heart. Well, I digress, dissolving into mists of the past. The Mummers Parade, I gather, is quite different now, more Broadway than Broad Street, but for me the exuberance of the parade was always a sad, sad moment. It was the dead end of Christmas, the butt end of all that light and wonder. It was New Year's Day, and tomorrow... The world, as it mostly was, would start again. The tree would vanish. The smells, sounds, and tastes would be packed and put away for another eleven months, and when you were a kid, the prospect of a year without Christmas surrounding you was the saddest of times in all the world. Face it, children. Christmas is part anticipation, but most of it is memory. Reflection of things past, ghosts of what was. Thomas Hardy grabs a bit of that in his poem, The Oxen. In it, he makes reference to the old tale that on the first Christmas, all the animals in the stable were given voices to honor the Christ child at midnight, and the oxen and sheep and all the other creatures of the stable bowed down to him. Here it is. It's short. Christmas Eve, and twelve of the clock. Now they are all on their knees, an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers and hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures, where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to us there to doubt that they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years, yet... I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, Come, see the oxen kneel in the lonely barton by yonder coombe our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. Hardy speaks of the power of Christmas to draw us back to our childhood dreams and wishes. Yeah. Before we bungle forth into tonight's tale, I do want to mention one sad passing. British writer Joel Lane died last week. He was a young man, 50 years old. I don't know at this time what took him. I have heard he died in his sleep. I know he had diabetes, but don't know if that had anything to do with it. Joel was a novelist, short story writer, poet, critic, and an anthology editor, he received the World Fantasy Award just a few months ago and was twice the recipient of the British Fantasy Award. Born in Exeter, he was the nephew of tenor saxophonist Ronnie Scott, and at the time of his death he lived in Birmingham, which city frequently provided settings for his fiction. Most of his stories are horror or dark fantasy, but his novels are more mainstream. I did not know Joel, but... Emma Audsley, the owner, editor, and publisher of the horrifically horrifying horror blog, knew him well, 
She's done a very personal farewell to him on her blog, so stop by and read it. It's at, well, it's a long one, so I will put it on the Tales to Terrify homepage. It's the horrifically horrifying horrorblog.com. And then this piece is called Time to Say Goodbye. Fiction. Once again, Joe McKinney is our author of the evening. Joe wrote the Stoker-nominated short story, Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens, which we presented in show 72 as part of this year's Stoker Roundup. Just a few weeks ago, we had an all-McKinney evening when we curled up to A Little Crimson Stain and The Gunner's Love Story. Joe is a police sergeant. In his day job, he helps run the city of San Antonio's 9-11 Dispatch Center. Pertinent to us, he's a writer of horror, crime, and science fiction, whose short stories and novellas have been published in more than 30 publications and anthologies. His longer works include the four-part Dead World series, Dead City, Apocalypse of the Dead, Flesh Eaters, and The Zombie King. He also wrote the science fiction disaster tale, Quarantined, which was Bram Stoker nominated in 2009, and the crime novel, Dodging Bullets. Upcoming and recent releases include the horror novels Lost Girl of the Lake, The Red Empire, and The Charge. With Michelle McCrary, Joe edited the zombie-themed anthology Dead Set, and with Mark Unspaugh, The Forsaken, an abandoned building-themed anthology. Most recently, Joe's story, Do No Harm, appeared in the anthology Fear the Reaper from Crystal Lake Publishing. Here, then, to begin our Christmas listening, is Joe McKinney's Resurrecting Mindy. The big Christmas tree in front of the Dayton Mall had fallen down sometime during the last year. Kevin's gaze drifted over the faded tinsel and mud-encrusted ornaments and wondered when it had happened, probably during the rains back in early September. Those had been bad. A lot of the area had flooded, and the winds that came with the rains must have done that damage to the tree as well. Of course, he really didn't know for sure. The only time he ever came back here was at Christmas time. The world had ended three years before, just before Christmas, and the inside of the Dayton Mall still had a lot of decorations hanging from the common areas and inside the shop windows. Every year, right around this time, he made the trek back to the mall and scavenged whatever he could carry to decorate wherever he was living at the moment. These days, it had become a ritual, just like the keeping up his calendar and keeping his hair trimmed and making sure his food stores were well stocked. The rituals, in fact, were about all he had left. That, and the soul-sucking loneliness that came with being the last man left alive. It made him wonder if there was any reason to keep going. After all, did it matter when he died? Tomorrow, or thirty years from now, the results would be the same. After he was finished, humanity was finished. Wasn't he just postponing the inevitable? Could be, but he wasn't quite ready to throw in the towel just yet. For now, he had a mission. Kevin got down on his belly so he could squeeze between the front tandems of an 18-wheeler. From there, he watched the parking lot, mentally charting a safe route over to the doors. It actually didn't look like it'd be very difficult this year. The zombie hordes that had swarmed the area in years past had thinned. He didn't know if the majority of them had moved on or decayed away to the point they couldn't function anymore. Maybe they'd started to eat each other. Who the hell knew? He supposed it didn't really matter. Fewer zombies meant it was easier to stay alive, and that was all that mattered. There were fewer than 50 of them out there walking the parking lot now, and it didn't take long for a wide gap to open up in the crowd. Kevin tensed, ready to run. Another few seconds and it would be wide enough for him to go. And that's when he saw her. Mindy Matheson. Holy shit, he thought. He stared at her for a long moment, watching her curious, clumsy movements. That really was her. That's Mindy Matheson. And she's faking it. It'd been a long while since he'd seen a faker. Most didn't last long. 
right after the outbreak, Kevin and some of the other survivors he'd hung out with back then had seen one or two a week. The fakers tried to make themselves look like zombies. They smelled like zombies, moved like zombies, had flies swarming around their eyes and mouths like zombies. But they weren't zombies, and sooner or later, they messed up. They slipped out of character for just a second, and that was all it took. One tiny slip, one momentary distraction, and the zombies they moved with swarmed them. Usually, at least as far as Kevin was concerned, it wasn't much of a loss. The only reason a person ever decided to fake it was because they had given up on their humanity. Surviving among the ruins of what the world had once been was hard. It sucked, in fact. In order to survive, in order to stay sane, you had to work at it. Every day was a fight, every breath was brought with tears and sweat and loneliness. And sometimes, living free didn't seem much of a payback. The fakers couldn't hack it. But they didn't have the courage to end it all either. They were the real walking dead, not the zombies, and Kevin had never felt anything but disgust for them. Until now, of course. He and Mindy Matheson, they dated right after high school. She'd never said two words to him during school. Neither one of them had been all that popular, but it had been a big school and she had her friends and he had his. But afterwards, when they found they were working at the Home Depot together, neither one of them with the foggiest notion of what they were going to do with their lives, they sort of fell together for about eight months. They didn't end on an obvious note. No cheating, no fighting, nothing like that. They just drifted apart. At the time, he'd figured they just weren't right for each other. That explained why they hadn't noticed each other back in school. What happened while they were working together was just the natural gravity of two lonely people. And so, just as their orbits brought them together, those same orbits carried them apart. She grew distant, he grew irritable. She stopped calling, he stopped caring. Soon they were basically strangers again. The brief interlude was forgotten, and the two of them went back to their lives of uncertainty and quiet desperation. He gave himself a self-deprecating chuckle. For all that the world had changed, they hadn't. The two of them were still living their half-lives, midway between life and death. But he had laughed louder than he had wanted to, and she had heard him. He saw her cock her head to one side. She turned toward the truck where he was hiding, her shifting, searching gaze, the only thing that separated her from the wandering corpses nearby. Kevin whistled faintly, just loud enough for her to hear. She staggered forward. For a moment, he thought of running away from there. What did he think he was doing anyway? What could he do? It wasn't like they were going to run off together or anything. Not now. To fake it for any length of time at all, she had to go native in a mighty convincing kind of way. And that she certainly had. Kevin looked her up and down, from the stringy, matted mess that was her hair, to her bare and blackened feet, and tried not to grimace at the stench that came off her. Her face was filthy, her lips cracked and flaking. Her clothes were so filthy and ratty he couldn't even tell what color they had once been. Flies swarmed about her face. But she was standing right in front of him now, watching him. She swayed drunkenly, her mouth hanging open slightly. He wanted to hate her, but her eyes were overbright, pregnant with a suggestion of pain, and despite his loathing, he felt his heart breaking out of pity. He could, after all, still see the girl under all that grime and slathered gore. She had gotten skinny as a crack whore, but the curves were still in the right place. And she still had that cute little upturned nose that used to drive him wild when she smiled. Hi, Mindy, he said. She just stared at him, no expression on her face. Hey, you know why they put fences around graveyards? He asked her. Kevin waited a beat. Because people are just dying to get in. Again, he waited. Her expression didn't change. She just stood there, swaying. You heard that one, huh? She might have nodded, but if so, it was faint, and he couldn't be sure. How about this one? A guy finds out he only has 12 hours to live. He goes home to his wife, determined to live it up for his last night on earth. So they have sex, and it's great. An hour later, they do it again, and it's even better. And then, a few hours after that, he tells her he thinks they can go at it a third time. Easy for you to say, she tells him. You don't have to wake up in the morning. He beat his index fingers on the truck tire in front of him like he was firing off a rim shot. He smiled at her, and then the smile faded. Why in the hell is he doing this? There was no reaching this girl. And was he really so lonely that he was talking to a faker? 
But then he saw a flicker at the corner of her mouth, the faintest trace of a smile, and that brought a huge grin to his face. Are you doing okay, Mindy? The smile disappeared. He saw what looked like a tear forming in her eyes. He almost reached up for her hand then, and had one of the real zombies not let him moan at the very moment, he might have thrown her over his shoulder and carried her away from there. But a few more real zombies had spotted him. Several were moaning now, staggering towards him. He'd been careless, and now it was time to go. I'm staying in an apartment at Woodlawn and Spruce, he said. The zombie dropped to the pavement and started crawling under the truck toward him. I gotta go, he said. Remember, it's the Bent Tree Apartments, Woodlawn and Spruce, number 318. More zombies had gotten under the truck now. The lead one held up a mangled, handless arm, the blackened tips of its ulna and radius extending from rotten flesh. Gotta go, he said. Several days later, with Christmas, by his count, less than a week away, Kevin was putting up ornaments on a fake tree. There had been a hallmark in the Dayton Mall, and he'd made good use of the Snoopy ornaments piled on the floor. Growing up, his mom had waited out front of the local hallmark in order to scoop up whatever was new that year. At the time, he thought it stupid. They're collector's items, she said, or they will be, which, to his way of looking at it, hadn't made it any less stupid. But now, hanging the Snoopy with the little typewriter, and Snoopy as a World War I ace ornaments on his tree, he sensed a flood of painful memories trying to surface. Christ, he thought. He didn't need this. Not now. He heard moaning coming through an open window, and he jumped to his feet to take a look. There was no point in it, really. The zombies keyed off of what they saw and heard. Those were about the only two senses that seemed to work, and as long as he stayed out of sight and kept quiet, his little hiding spot up in this third-floor apartment was as safe as any spot on earth. But he crossed to the window anyway, because checking out the zombies kept him from his memories. And that's when he saw Mindy Matheson for the second time. Her group had wandered from the mall over to here, probably in search of the pack of wild dogs Kevin had heard bang in the night for the last few days. The group wasn't especially large. He counted about 30, though there were almost certainly a few more somewhere out of sight. They wouldn't be much of a threat when he needed to go out, but even still, there were enough of them that they would probably be sticking around for a few days at least. They hunted collectively, he discovered, so the bigger groups tended to stay in one place longer. Just as well, Kevin thought. It would give him a chance to talk with Mindy again. He slid out the window and into the chilly evening air. It looked like it would probably rain later. There was a ledge just below his window that led over to another building's roof. From there, he climbed onto a billboard that looked down on the intersection where Mindy and the others were wandering around, moaning. He kept a can of spray paint up there, just in case. He gave it a shake and wrote, Hey, Mindy, I'm in 318, over to your right. Come on up. He gathered quite a crowd. At first glance, he noticed that he'd underestimated the size of the group by at least half, probably no more. Their mangled, upturned faces and ruined hands were all pointed at him, their moans taking on an urgent, pulsing quality that he had come to think of as their feeding call. He saw quite a few of them down there. But Mindy wasn't with them. She was drifting away from the group, stepping back toward a screen of shrubs at the far side of the intersection while the others surged forward. Good girl, he muttered. Moving quickly, he went back to his apartment. The zombies wouldn't be able to follow, and besides, he had some quick cleaning up to do. She wouldn't sit down. He offered her a place on his couch at his table on the floor. She just shook her head every time he offered. Kevin tried small talk, but she wouldn't answer any of his questions, and after a while he began to feel foolish and stupid, like he was wasting both their time. He jammed his hands into his pockets and looked around the room for some glimmer of inspiration. Nothing. So, he said, you know what they call a fast-moving zombie? He waited a beat, hoping for another of her half-smiles. A zombie. She just stared at him, and the cold, lifeless emptiness there sent a chill through him. How about a hockey-playing zombie, he said, forcing a grin. A zombuni. What do you think, huh? I got a million of them. How about this? A zombie, an Irish priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. This was a mistake, she said. 
coming here. I'm sorry. She spoke quietly, her voice cracked and hoarse, as though she'd almost forgotten how to use it. I'm going, Kevin. What? No. He took a step toward her, but stopped when the smell hit him. He tried not to let his surprise and his disgust show in his face, though it probably did anyway. Please, Mindy, don't. It's Christmas. She didn't answer, but she didn't turn to leave either. I've got some food. Are, are you hungry? She nodded immediately. He went into the little kitchenette and slid a cube of Spam out of a can. He cut it into four big slices and handed her the plate. I'm sorry I don't have... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Minnie snatched it from his hands. She ate with her fingers, jamming the meat into her mouth, barely chewing. Several times she nearly choked. Bits and pieces fell from the corners of her mouth. She stopped eating only once, long enough to look at him over her plate. Don't look at me while I eat, she said, her words about as close to a snarl as any he'd ever heard a girl make, and then, more quietly, please don't look at me, he nodded. Sure, okay. Kevin went to the cupboards and took down some more cans. He had Vienna sausages, some fruit cocktail, applesauce, a jar of sauerkraut. Better take the stuff out of the can, he thought, remembering the way she jammed her fingers into the pile of Spam. Last thing he wanted was for her to cut her fingers on the sharp edges of the cans. He went to work putting the meal onto paper plates and then setting the plates onto the table. When he turned around, she was standing right behind him watching his neck. Seeing her made him jump. Shit, he said. You scared me. The look in her bloodshot eyes was inscrutable, and he didn't like it. Her gaze drifted down to the food on the table. Go ahead, he said. I have tea and water, whichever you prefer. She fell on the food without answering, without bothering to sit in the chair he pulled over for her, so he got her a cup of water and set it down next to her plates. She had asked him not to watch her eat, which was okay with Kevin. The wet, slurping noises she made were enough for him to know he didn't want to watch. He went over to his couch and looked at some of the magazines he'd left there a bunch of old playboys he found at the used bookstore over by the mall. He gathered them up and hurriedly stuffed them under the couch, but not before catching a glimpse of the sleepy-eyed brunette on the cover of the top magazine. So much had changed, he thought sadly. So much had been lost, the good and the bad. Eventually, Mindy's eating noises stopped. Kevin walked over to the kitchen. Mindy was still at the table, looking around at the cupboards with a bovine-like vacuity. Are you still hungry? he asked. I have more. You can have anything I have. She shook her head. 
More water, maybe? I can make you that tea, I promised. Again, she shook her head. A joke about little Johnny, a bucket of nails, and a zombie hooker came to mind, but for once his internal filter was working and he cut it off before it had a chance to get out. Instead, he let the silence linger. She had turned to face him, and now she was swaying drunkenly, same as she had done in the mall parking lot. It occurred to him that she had probably internalized so much zombie behavior that even now, when she was completely safe, she was unable to turn it off. But the silence was murder. He had never dealt well with uncomfortable silences. It was the main reason he told so many bad jokes. Better to fill up the void with inane nonsense than let a painful silence grow. He said, Listen, there's no need for you to go back out there. You're welcome to stay as long as you'd like. I've got some sterno. We could heat up some water, let you take a hot bath, maybe. All at once, a tear started. One minute she was watching him, quietly and vacantly, and the next she was crying. Big, muddy-colored tears ran down her cheeks. Oh, shit, he said. Mindy, I'm I'm sorry. What did I say? I, I shouldn't have come, she said. This was a mistake. She moved hurriedly to the door. Every impulse in him told him to go after her, hold the door closed, take her in his arms, but he didn't do it. He just watched her go without a word. Mindy shuffled through the rain, her mind a blank, or at least she tried to make it a blank. Right now, that wasn't working out so well. It was cold, windy, and rainy, and cold. Her clothes were a little more than rags. They offered no protection whatsoever. For too long now, she'd wandered mindlessly, emotionless, denying all pain and shame, a true aesthetic. The rain tore at her skin like icy razors and chilled her to the bone, but she did not tremble, nor did she cry. She let her arms swing limply by her side, her fingertips grazing the ice that formed on her clothes as she kept pace with the horde of dead things brushing against her. Thought was the enemy, not the dead. With thought came fear and pain and a memory of all that was gone. If she thought too long, if she thought at all, the dead would see it in her eyes and she wouldn't last long after that. But the mind was like a flood. It could be contained for a while, even a long while, but it could never be truly silenced until it had run its course. And right now, her mind was turning towards shame. But it wasn't the shame of what had happened to her. No, strike that. She thought, of what you have allowed to happen to you, that bothered her so. It was that damn Kevin O'Brien. When she was by herself, she felt no shame for what she was doing. She was surviving, and she was doing it in the face of a universe that didn't give a rat's ass for what happened to her, or the rest of humanity for that matter. She was surviving, damn it. But so was he. And he hadn't given up anything. He hadn't debased himself like this. He hadn't sacrificed every last scrap of his self-respect just to draw another breath. She hated him. She hated him because he was still human and because his charity reminded her that she was not. Not anymore. So she turned off her mind and wandered. Damn him. Damn the world. Damn life. There was nothing of the world left for her anymore. Nothing but the emptiness and the slow, relentless crawl of time. One foot in front of the other forever after. The billboard came as a surprise to her. For a moment, just a fraction of a second, she stopped, and she stared. She hadn't realized where she was, but up there, up above the mindless crowd, was a message written just for her. Hey, Mindy, it's cold. Come on up. I've got a warm bed. A memory floated up into her mind, unbidden. The two of them, finishing off their shift, her letting him walk her out to the parking lot, he had a joint in his pocket, and she didn't have anywhere to go. They went around back to the loading dock and passed it back and forth, talking about random shit, nothing either of them really cared about. He was nice, a little dorky, but all right. She could tell he was getting interested. It was in the way he cracked his lame jokes when he should have let the quiet grow, the way his fingers twitched when they touched whenever she took the joint from him. She could have shut it down right then. He was the scared type. He'd back off and nothing more would have ever become of it. But she didn't have anywhere else to go, and they both knew it. She went back to his place. Sitting on his couch, her hand on his thigh, he actually asked if he could kiss her. That had never happened to her before. Most guys went straight for the tits. After that, it was a wrestling match to keep her pants on. 
You don't have to ask, she said. And before she knew it, they were some sort of a couple. But he wasn't wasting that kind of time now. The apocalypse, it seemed, had made him a little bolder. Come on up. I've got a warm bed. Yeah, right, she thought. I bet you do. But she'd been careless. She'd thought too long, dropped out of character. One of the dead ones a few feet to her right had turned her way, and now his dead, vacant stare was locked on her. She tried to clear her mind, to stumble forward, but the zombie's gaze never wavered. He raised his hands like he was trying to take something from her and staggered after her, a moan rising above the wind and the cutting rain. She pushed his hands away and looked around. This wasn't going to work. Every moment she lingered more and more of them turned her way. She scanned the crowd, and in the dark, the only way out seemed to lead around the corner where she had taken the stairwell once before, up to his apartment. A limp hand fell on her shoulder, and that was enough. She ran for it. She stopped in front of 318. Jesus, she thought. Had she really sunk this low? Getting torn apart by the walking dead almost seemed a joy compared to coming to him like a penitent. She thought she was done with guilt, with shame, but it hurt now more than ever. Utterly demoralized, she knocked. He couldn't sleep. In the dark, he rose and put on his boxers and went to the kitchen to light a candle. Enough light filled the room that he could see her sleeping in his bed. The rain had washed away a good amount of dirt and grime from her body and hair, but her breath had still been enough to turn his stomach, and even in his sleep he couldn't quite hide his disgust. He had dreamt of a zombie forcing her face into the soft part of his neck, and when he awoke, he'd found her pressing her cracked and ulcerous lips into the well beneath his chin. Half asleep, he'd recoiled from her, almost falling out of bed before realizing that it was only a dream. Now, fully awake, he watched her sleep and tried to hate her, but he couldn't. Who in the hell was he to judge anyway? She was desperate. She was lonely. She was scared. Wasn't he all of that and more? In fact, the only thing he had on her was the appearance of normalcy. The truth was, he was drowning. His life was an act, his jokes, the Christmas decorations, his calendar-keeping, all of it was a terrible, useless, stupid joke. He drifted from one empty apartment to the next, from one false front to the next, like a ghost blown on the wind, and he called it a life. Were they any different, he and Mindy? He couldn't answer, not truthfully anyway and eventually he blew out the candle and crept back to bed and reluctantly put an arm around her as he drifted off to sleep. When he awoke the next morning, he was alone, the only sign she had been there a muddy stain on the sheets. He sat on the side of the bed, asking himself why he even bothered. She had left him, again, and this time it was because she knew he was the one who was faking. He was the hypocrite, he was the disgusting one, and she had found him out. Mindy stopped in the doorway as she left Kevin's apartment building and scanned the street. There were no dead in sight, but that didn't mean they weren't there. She'd seen it happen a few times over the last year. She'd be shuffling along with the others, absolutely nothing going on inside her head, and suddenly there'd be a scream. Another careless person had wandered into their midst, completely surprised by the sudden appearance of a zombie horde that in reality hadn't been trying to sneak up on anybody. Most of the group's kills were made that way, completely by accident, people caught by their own carelessness. Without realizing it, she had assumed the awkward shuffle of the dead, her bare feet, no longer sensitive to heat or ice or even broken glass, slid across the cracked and weedy pavement as though on autopilot. She tried to turn off her mind as well, but she found that much harder. She kept thinking of Kevin. What exactly had happened last night? Not what, not really. She knew what had happened. That had actually been quite pleasant, better than she remembered it anyway. No, what she really wanted to know was why, and why now. She'd seen others before him. She knew they weren't the only ones. She suspected, and she believed this without reservation, that there were more normal people out there than she'd seen. There had to be. The world couldn't simply be empty. That wasn't possible. But none of the others had managed to arouse her pity. She'd watched them die, and in some cases rise again, and she'd felt nothing. And then, Kevin. He told her his stupid jokes. 
He'd offer her a place to stay, all the food he had, even a warm bath. In the few days since she'd first seen him, she hadn't been able to stop thinking about him. Before him, walking around being dead was no trouble at all. She could go days at a time without a single thought passing through her mind. The world was one unending parade of nothingness. And then he came along, and she couldn't take three steps without falling out of character, without thinking of the life they'd once shared. That's what it was, she told herself. He was a window to the world that used to be, a shipwreck from her past that had mysteriously surfaced to haunt her mind. There was nothing more to it than that. He was nothing but a ghost, and she was merely lonely. But a voice at the back of her mind kept prodding, questioning. What if there was more? What if this was... love? Maybe, she thought. It was Christmas Day, after all. She'd seen the calendar. The days gone by dutifully crossed out with a big red X, right before she'd walked out of his apartment. Christmas had a way of warming even the coldest heart. Wasn't that the secret to Scrooge's redemption? She'd never paid much attention to books in school, but she thought she remembered that much. For Scrooge, it hadn't been fear of the grave, but fear that the heart would no longer love again. That made it possible for him to accept the spirit of Christmas into his life. She stopped then, a sudden alarm causing her pulse to quicken. She had fallen out of character again. She'd stopped walking like the dead. Like her mind, her feet had started to wander. If she'd happened upon one of the dead while walking like that, they'd have torn her to ribbons. But for now, she was alone on the street. Turning, she happened to see her reflection in a shop window, and at first, that one quick glance threatened to send her over the edge of reason. She looked horrible. In a word, she looked dead. And she played the part well. Her hair was stiff with mud, and probably blood, too. Her face, which hadn't been that bad back in the day, was discolored with God knows what. Attractive, it seemed, only to flies. Her body was a bony jangle of sticks. She looked like a crack whore, though she imagined that even the crack whores of the world gone by had more self-respect than she did at that moment. She had nothing. But then her gaze shifted beyond the window to see the sexy elf costume in the display. For a moment, she experienced an odd sense of displacement. It was her face, her gaunt, exhausted face, but her body was draped in the red velvety finery of the elf costume. Her fingers reached for, and could almost feel, the cotton candy fringe at the edge of the playfully short skirt. She smiled. Kevin O'Brien, you wonderful bastard, I'm going to blow your mind. It was Christmas morning. He had hoped to wake up late and spend the day with her, hopefully draw her out little by little. The two of them had been pretty good, he thought, back in the day. And they were certainly good last night. When they were good, it seemed, they was really good. He'd hoped it could be that way again. But she'd left him sometime in the night. His attempts to draw her into his world weren't fair, he supposed. Why would she want to join him anyway? Hadn't she found him out? She knew he was faking it, and he knew he was faking it, and he was tired of faking it. The choice, once he'd given it voice, was surprisingly easy to make. The only hard part had been accepting that as an option. But once he opened his mind to it, it actually made a lot of sense. He went to the billboard and spray-painted a message for her. Then he went down to the street and climbed on top of a brick wall and waited for one of the dead to come along. He thought he'd be scared, but for the first time in a long time, he felt relaxed, at ease with himself and the world in which he lived. You can settle in quite comfortably to even the most horrific of circumstances, given enough exposure to it. All horrors lost their immediacy, their nastiness, sooner or later. The nerves can only be slashed and cut and shredded so many times before they deaden to the pain. No, he was past horror. What he was feeling now was worse than that. In the time before he met her, his world had been filled with zombies. The horror they represented was a shallow, fast-moving river that beat him down and cut him on its jagged rocks. He had gone beyond that now. Here, the waters ran far slower, but they were deep, endlessly deep, and what lurked down there was something he could not fight. For what lurked down there was love. A zombie was at the base of the wall, its hands clumsily racking at the bricks just below Kevin. Kevin stared into the thing's eyes and saw the emptiness he'd fought against for so long, but had never truly understood. That would all change now, 
He had tried to get Mindy to live in his world, and that had failed, so now he would live in hers. And only love could allow him to do this. He jammed his left hand down into the zombie's face. It shook its head as though to shoo away an insect, and then realized what was in front of it. The zombie grabbed Kevin's forearm and clamped its teeth down on his wrist. Motherfuck! Kevin pulled his hand away, holding his wounded wrist in his right hand while blood oozed between his fingers. It hurt so badly he nearly rolled off the top of the wall. Already he could feel the virus creeping through his bloodstream, racing for his heart. It felt like somebody was jamming a red-hot copper wire up his veins. He didn't have much time, maybe 30 minutes, but probably less. Kevin rolled off the wall and trotted back to his apartment. Once inside, he washed the wound with hot water and wrapped it in a towel. It was already starting to smell like death. His head was soupy, and walking to the chair in the center of the room was hard. But he made it. He dropped down into the chair and turned to face the door and waited for the pain to stop. This felt absolutely glorious. Mindy had spent the day cleaning herself up, scouring off the stain of more than a year of living down among the dead. Now her hair was washed and brushed, her legs were shaved, her skin soft and fragrant from cocoa butter, still a little pink from her bath. The sexy elf costume showed a lot of leg and a lot of bruises and cuts, but those would heal. If her heart could heal, her legs certainly would. She felt better than she had felt in a very long time. She couldn't remember a time she'd felt this good, even before the world died. Mindy Matheson had come back from the dead, and love had done it for her, and it was glorious. Now she picked her way carefully through the rubble-strewn streets. The dead were out, the dead were always out, but there weren't many of them around at the moment. Then she saw the sign, and she smiled. It's all for you, Mindy Matheson. I love you. I want to be with you forever. She couldn't hold herself back any longer. She sprinted up the stairs and down the hall to his door. Slightly out of breath, she knocked on the door. No response. Maybe he was out getting stuff, she thought. More candles, maybe. Or, God help her, even a bottle of wine. She turned the knob and swung the door in slowly. Kevin? Thank you for that, Joe. One reason I've programmed Joe McKinney's work in such recent profusion is that I really like it. Then there's the fact that this, in particular, is a Christmas zombie story, one with a heart, in fact. As to its fetchings, Resurrecting Mindy was first published in 2011 by Armand Rosamilia in his anthology Undead Tales, and was reprinted in 2012 in the Dark Light Anthology. That anthology helped support the Ronald McDonald House charities. Resurrecting Mindy was read for us tonight by Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen has been a very busy fellow for us here at Tales to Terrify. He read John Everson's Pumpkin Man in show 92, in show 69, he read O.D. Haygray's It's Just Tearing Me All Apart. He also narrated the two-part version of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows in shows 77 and 78. And in show 72, he read Joe McKinney's Stoker-nominated Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens. Stephen has a culinary arts degree, is a customer service professional, and lives in Northern Virginia. He's an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, and board games, and also works in information technology. Recently, he began volunteering in prisons, and when not doing all of that, he enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. You can touch base with Stephen at http colon slash slash www.stephenski.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-S-K-I dot com. And that will be that, children of the night. Be upstanding. Be off with you. In the nicest sort of way. We're letting out a bit early this week, so head home. 
get a good night's sleep. Get up early tomorrow and get all your Christmas shopping done by noon. Then relax. Spend the time with your family, with loved ones. Tonight the walk home will be among the tuckered and the drained, the shoppers, the workers, stumbling about. Don't confuse them for the walking dead. These are only mostly dead. You need not pretend to be one with them. Just take the dark streets to home. And when you get there, go to bed, rest, relax, think good thoughts of the season, the sights, the lights, the sound, the smells. And don't think of the scent put forth by the walkers you may have met on the page or on the screen or in your ears tonight. That's a sure way to erase pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtof. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Wonders.com. Thank you for listening.